Welcome to the Oddcast, tales of teaching and hands-on learning at Hendricks College. Season 3 was recorded in the weeks directly following the spring closure of Hendricks due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Like everyone else, we were learning and adjusting to the new normal. We appreciate your understanding, and please enjoy the Oddcast. people to connect with so (laughs) okay Um, I'm Rachel Um, I used to no longer do uh, yearbook for Hendrix did it for all four years Um, and I now am two weeks away from graduation finished all of my classes um, and I'm working at a plant store full-time until I start a photography internship in June that's awesome. So, um, with my Odyssey, uh, and actually the idea for it came from another trip that I'd done with Odyssey, um, or through funded by Odyssey, etc. Um, so I had gone on a trip called Birthright. That's a trip that is paid for by the state of Israel for the most part. Um, for young people of Jewish heritage or religion to go to Israel for free with Dr. Chapman. And I've been really interested in coffee. And so mm-hmm. he started talking about uh, the importance of coffee in Bedouin culture. And all of these like flares just went up in my brain. And I went up to this man afterwards and I talked to him and I said, if I were to come back to Israel and do research, um, would you be able to help me? And would you be able to figure out where I'm going to stay? Or could I stay with you and your family? He said, absolutely. Here's my card. Um, when it gets closer to time, uh, contact me and we'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it didn't work out as smoothly as we'd both planned. And I don't know that he entirely remembered me because <laughs> I'm sure he, gets, <laughs> he sees hundreds of faces a day. There are at least, I think, 400 different trips that go there a night. And there's at least 50 people on each trip. So he sees thousands of people a day. The only thing that had not been for sure set up when it was time to go to Israel was that he had received my contact. I, I didn't have international phones at the time. Uh, I'd had trouble trying to schedule it through Hendrix. So... I had scheduled it through Birthright to try and contact him to let him know I'd be coming. And it really speaks to how all-encompassing the Bedouin hospitality is that I flew out to Israel, drove out to the desert on a bus, um, and essentially like came back to this guy's business with his just his business card in hand and said, six months ago, I was here and I said, if I came back and did research, you said you would let me stay with you and your family. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) And immediately he was like, ah, yes. But first I have um, a campsite, like an actual Bedouin campsite in the middle of the desert. They had one outlet. There was no, no phone signal except for maybe one spot. (laughs) Um, Like real, what it would, the closest to what it would be like to live traditionally as a Bedouin in you know modern Israel, uh, he said, I have this place to stay for you to stay for a few nights before you come to here, so that way you get the most authentic experience you can. So it really speaks to the Bedouin hospitality that I came all the way without him really even knowing I was going to be there because the contact didn't go through. Um, 
and he was completely unfazed and said absolutely of course it wasn't the first time he'd done something like this um it was the first time his wife had but he was absolutely unfazed and so were the people that i stayed with my first few nights so all that being said my original research was about coffee and hospitality in bedouin uh, society and Bedouin culture in Israel. Very quickly after I got there, I learned that I wasn't going to have enough information and there wasn't going to be enough information about coffee to do my thesis on. I could maybe do a small 10-page paper. <laughs> if you could real quick for me, um, just summarize your original project, like what you had originally presented. I know you'd kind of tapped on it being originally centered on coffee and it kind of morphed into hospitality just so we can kind of get an idea of where we were starting from originally I was looking at coffee and hospitality and the reason I decided to look at coffee was because it was a very important aspect of Bedouin culture and of Bedouin hospitality Um, traditionally whenever a guest comes into the home they are offered um, coffee there are levels to the amounts of coffee that you get there are like levels of protection So there was the first cup that's called the thirst cup. And you never get a full cup of coffee. You only get a half a cup of coffee, just a few sips. And that just kind of is, hello, welcome. We're not going to ask your name. We're not going to ask you any information. You can stay for um, a few hours and get some rest, have some food, and we'll protect you while you're here. The second cup is called, I believe, the sword cup. And it basically is, it's a little bit higher level protection of, you know, like you can stay for a night or two. You can stay for as long longer um and we will still protect you we still won't ask anything from you and then the third cup the third level of protection it's like you can stay for a few nights you can stay you know um they had a three days and a third rule that the longest you can stay is three days and then if it's you know raining you get an extra like third of a day um so like you can stay for all three and a third days we'll give you food all we really want to know is what's your name and what's your story and they never ask anything of a guest and so i thought it was really interesting that these rules were applied to coffee and there's also a fourth cup that is for not necessarily for guests who are strangers but for guests who are known and who are people in the village or people who are like family or friends And if it's someone that you don't necessarily, you know, has a bad reputation or something, um, if they get, if you get a full cup of coffee, it says you can stay for a little while, we'll chit chat, and then you need to leave. (laughs) The coffee is a very polite social way to indicate to somebody how long they're welcome. Yes. (laughs) Without having to say, hey, so you can stay for like 15 minutes, but then you got to go. Yeah, exactly. It's a societal rule that everyone can recognize and it removes the awkwardness of those situations. Oh, yeah. It's also really interesting because um, the grinding drum that they use to grind the coffee beans, it's literally like a drum. So whenever you hear the coffee, it sounds like music. And it, so it's like a signal to whoever who can hear it is this making this person's making coffee. They're going to be ready to host people soon. So come to their come to their tent, come to their home. What attracted you to the Bedouin culture? That little section of, you know, the coffee cups and everything was part of the spiel that he gave the night that I was in Israel the first th- that first time, that first trip. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting because I never really, like, knew coffee had been, had a really interesting history with hospitality and cultures all over, around the world. Um, but I never really heard of, like, of anything like that like there's very like strict rules of hospitality associated with how much you get um Mm -hmm. and I thought that was really interesting and I thought I could do some research on that and I thought if that's 
um, if that's something that I could do, there's got to be more to it. There wasn't that much more to it. <laughs> it opened a door to a lot more. I started reading about hospitality and Bedouin culture, and it opened a lot a door to a lot more information. And the more I read, the more interested I got. Because they, while they have a history of being like romanticized or being portrayed as like heavily violent culture, um, in at least modern times, there haven't been a lot of instances of violence. Was the Bedouin culture, were they um, previously a nomadic group? Yes, they were. Um, so they were nomadic and in this section of the world, in what's now modern-day Israel. They were nomadic up until maybe the late 1800s. During the Ottoman period is when they started to settle on their own. But there were still a lot of nomadic groups, or they were semi-nomadic. Uh, when the British took over in the mid-1900s, right before Israel became a state, um, they started to be a little bit more nomadic, and there are actually documents you know, they show they purchased land from the British that got ignored later. And then when Israel took over, that's when the state of Israel kind of started to try and move Bedouins into the cities and get rid of the idea of Bedouin villages and try and make them completely sedentary and especially get them off of land in the desert that they wanted to develop for Jewish communities. Moving out from your um, original coffee idea, tell me what ethnographic research is. Ethnographic research is a method of anthropology where you immerse yourself in a culture. You can do participant observation, which is where you, you know, you go to a culture and you participate in the culture around you while also observing and taking notes. Um, you interview people about their culture, not necessarily asking pointed questions. You know, I wouldn't ask why is coffee associated with hospitality? <laughs> I would try and kind of ask questions around it to get more information. So ethnographic methods is just qualitative research to try and kind of piece together how a culture interacts with itself. One of the previous stories we had done was um, on Dr. Peska and Dr. Goldberg's mm -hmm. um, Blue Zones research. They had said, uh, one of the students on the trip had said, anthropology is kind of sketchy. Because you go around, you just talk to strangers and ask them questions about themselves. And I yeah. thought that was a very interesting assessment. And the way I hear you saying it, it seems along the same lines. You've got people to, to trust you to tell you things about them and their lives. Definitely the way I went about, especially like crossing my fingers and going out to the middle of the desert and hoping that it worked out. There's usually a little bit more structure. Um, yeah. <laughs> Usually I would like to, you know, have an, a, a phone that I can have an international plan with, um, which I did not at the time, uh, to actually be able to call him. Um, or now I know um, they use WhatsApp a lot, um, or at least the huh. family that I stayed with used WhatsApp, the village. Um, so they didn't necessarily have a cellular, like, international plan. They just used that to text around or call. I can still text them now. There's a lot of trust that comes with being an anthropologist or working in anthropology is that kind of, I don't, I don't know, I don't really know what it's like to be on the other side of talking to an anthropologist. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you kind of do, <laughs> look what I'm doing. I'm asking all kinds of true. questions. That's true. <laughs> so I guess I'm, I'm trusting, if I were to reveal confidential information to you, which I don't think I will be, but 
if I were, I would be like, I would trust you that if I gave you this information, you would use it correctly. You wouldn't mm -hmm. miss it. And then if it needed to be confidential, it would be. And that's kind of a lot of what goes into ethnographic field work is that when someone tells you something, and especially if it's something that could put them at risk, or if you're working with an at-risk population, you do everything you can to make sure that you can get the information without it reflecting back on them or hurting them. So when I wrote my paper or when I presented my research, I used, you know, I used fake names and I didn't use the name of the village that I stayed in. And I haven't said the name of the village that I stayed in now. Mm -hmm. um, when I talk about my research to other people, I don't use their actual names. Um, yeah. There's no, I did, I did notice that you weren't addressing anybody by name. I guess I didn't really think about uh, the anthropology side of it being a protection side too, because they're giving you information that's important to them and maybe to their safety, given the circumstances in which they're currently living. And I do consider, at least personally, the Bedouins in Israel, uh, specifically to be an at-risk population. Um, so I went through as well, I went through HSRB to make sure that this was going to be okay. Um, and of course, everything was confidential. Um, yeah, and I just wanted to make sure, especially um, if in the future I end up continuing doing research, which I hope to eventually do um, with the Bedouin, um, that if I eventually end up ever publishing anything or if anyone ever any, reads any of my papers, that if they, some, if they say something compromising, they can't go back and find out who that was. And this might be too personal a question, but... I'm curious, uh, as a person of, of Jewish descent, do you have a conflict in that, in those feelings about the state of Israel and how they're treating the Bedouin culture? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think I thought about that the whole time I was doing my research and writing my paper and it felt like every time I learned something new, it was a whole personal reflection because growing up, or at least growing up the way I did growing up Jewish, you don't necessarily hear about all sides of how Israel was formed as a state. You don't hear the whole history. You hear the history that, you know, you were taught. Um, and you don't hear everyone's side of the story. You hear Israel is for the Jews. Um, and I don't, I think Israel should be for a lot of populations that live there, not just people of Jewish ethnicity or religious faith, you know? Um, and I've always kind of thought that growing up, I was like, I think everyone should have an equal share. But the more that I get into doing this research, there was a lot of, you know, I've been doing a lot of reading about how even before Israel was formed as a state, there was a lot going back and forth between future, what would, what would be future Israeli government and the British government trying to turn it into a state, doing all these back paperworks to try and turn it into a state as soon as possible, um, going around loopholes. Um, um, there are like letters from Netanyahu to, uh, I believe there was one to his son where it was like, we have to do whatever we can to get these people out of the desert so that we can settle Jewish populations. Um, when Israel did become a state and yet, um, and he was trying to get people to come to Israel, Jewish people to come to Israel, Netanyahu advertised the, uh, the desert of Israel where the Bedouin were living as completely untouched and no one was living there, even though there were definitely still populations living there. Um, 
And it's, it's very hard to be a person of Jewish ethnicity and to read all of this that, you know, was done for, in the name of the Jewish people to these indigenous populations, people who have lived there with documentation, either on paper or archeologically for hundreds of years, if not thousands. And it was just kind of hard to, kind of hard to be associated with that. And it's also kind of hard to talk about, you know, with anyone at home, you know, any, my mom even is a little bit hard to talk to about, but anyone in my synagogue, it's a little hard to talk to about. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's been, it's been a huge like personal reflection um, doing all this research and then also being Jewish to see what was done in the name of people of my ethnicity and religion. <laughs> it sounds like this project ended up being uh, much more personal maybe than you had originally intended. Yeah. <laughs> Especially like when I, when I got there and I made the connections with the people that I did, you know, when I was leaving um, the wife of the man who I stayed with, you know, she was crying and she was like, you're like one of my daughters now, you know, like I, I made some very personal connections. They still message me like every now and then with like pictures or little fragments of Arabic that I understand. <laughs> um, so it was, it turned, it ended up being a very personal trip for me and I didn't expect it to be. Tell me about one of your typical days with the family since it sounds like you were very heavily involved in their day-to-day -day life. So a day where I would just spend my whole day with the family, we wouldn't really go out anywhere. We wouldn't really go talk to people. It was just a day of kind of at home participant observation. Um, Cause it was also, I was a single woman uh, living in a rural Arabic village where they weren't very, very strict, but um, you know, I was still a single woman. I, still had I wore um, a headscarf out of respect and so um, the man I stayed with was like not everyone might be nice like us so just be careful I was staying at a separate home it was a guest house um, so I had my own room so I would walk um, just a little bit down a dirt road to his wife's house um, and I would do that as early in the morning as possible because the guest house was also used for if the man I was staying with had guests, not necessarily guests that would be at his wife's home, but, you know, other people like me who would stop by for a few hours to interview him. And so I would go over there pretty early. Uh, we would start our day with uh, coffee and not necessarily black Arabic coffee, but um, it was, I don't know what she did, but it was delicious. It was coffee and some sort of cream milk combination. Um, we would start with coffee and I would help her water her garden, um, which was huge and massive. And it was very impressive for the middle of the desert. Mm -hmm. um, she had her own kind of like an unofficial like village business where she would like, she would go out to the market, buy a pot, grow something in it, and then she would sell it to someone in the village. So it was really cool to kind of see her get to do that. And that was like her contribution other than raising the kids and taking care of the house so i would help her with her garden and then we would sit down and eat breakfast sometimes um it would be everyone um when i was there was during it was the last like bit of the school year so a lot of the times the kids would already be gone by the time i got there except for the youngest ones um so we would 
eat breakfast with whoever was there. Um, and then it would be kind of a thing of we would kind of lounge around on pillows or we would be doing uh, work around the house. Um, the kids and I had a mission to teach me Arabic and to help them with their English for school. So that was also part of my thing of, um, of me staying there is that I would also help with everyone's English. And it ended up kind of being everyone's English because even the man I was staying with, whose English was very, very good, um, there were still some times that, you know, I caught him by surprise. He didn't know the English word for okra, which, of course. So my days consisted of running around with the kids. Um, if we had a guest over, I would sit and um, uh, I would, you know, sometimes there would be guests that would speak a little bit of English. So I could do a little bit of chit chat. Uh, around maybe one, we would try and get the youngest kids to, you know, go to sleep for their nap. Um, and then everyone else who was not a young child who was present would go and nap because that's also part of the Bedouin culture. That's part of a lot of cultures um, is to, you know, nap during the middle of the day. And then as we were napping, a lot of the older kids would start getting home from school. The older daughters, usually when she would get home from her high school or the one from college would get home, they would start cooking dinner or they would start uh, cooking something to eat, just like a snack. Uh, a lot of the times it'd be pretty late when we finally sat down for dinner, the sun would have set. Um, and so we'd be eating and we'd all be talking around in a mix of Arabic and English and eating food that we had made. And um, a lot, it was, it was, it was really, it was, I'm an only child. So it was really interesting because I'd kind of become a part of this huge family. There were, I think, 12 kids total. But yeah, so then we'd eat dinner. We'd sit around and chit chat for a while. Very occasionally a guest would come you know, pretty late and just stay for a few minutes on their way home. Uh, and then at some point I would duck out, say goodnight and just walk home. So that was like a, a day when, you know, we didn't go anywhere. We didn't go to the market. We didn't go to visit people. We didn't go to visit the college and speak to so-and-so. Um, that was just a regular day. Um, <laughs> and it, it doesn't sound like a lot, like, but it was, a it does, it does sound like a lot, actually. <laughs> it was a very packed day. There was never, there were very rarely times where I was just sitting around doing nothing. Um, I mean, just the act of preparing food for 10 to 12 people is a monumental task. Mm -hmm. Oh, and they, what, um, they a lot of times made their own bread too. I was just about to ask about the bread, actually. <laughs> <laughs> they make it's it's imagine a tortilla but it's a lot thinner and it's huge and it's not like the ethiopian bread that's got like the little it's kind of spongy and it's kind of bubbly it's it's literally like the thinnest tortilla like a paper thin tortilla and it's larger than a pizza um and they would make it by hand they taught me how to make it and i could i could kind of do most of the process by the time i left um so they have um, it looks like an upside down wok. It's just like a mm -hmm. piece of metal that's like a big mound, and they put that over the fire. It's just like dough, salt, and water. Um, and then they start kind of tossing it back and forth between their hands, kind of like you would with a pizza, but a lot thinner. Uh, and they just get it as flat as possible, like as thin as possible, and then they just lay it on top of the mound. 
and it only has to, it's so thin it only has to stay on for like a few minutes before they flip it and then you take it off again after like a little bit longer and then you just they just fold it up and they toss it back in the bowl and they start again but bread was a very important part of their like diet and part of their meals Oh, can you expand? You said um, that there were different kinds of coffee. She said there was the Arabic black coffee, and then um, you said that she had served you a different kind of coffee. Can you kind of talk to me about what a typical Arabic black coffee would be? Yeah, so typically it's they store green coffee beans in their home that they buy from the market, and they store it green because it doesn't go bad quickly. Um, so they have little pans that they would put over the fire where you roast the coffee beans. Um, and then there are some home, Bedouin homes nowadays that have their own, you know, like they have something electronic in their homes that can do it. Um, but a lot of people still do it just over the fire of the pan. It really depends on the home. Traditionally, you have the coffee drum that I talked about earlier, the grinding drum, where you grind the coffee beans. And then there is the, uh, you know, the little stereotypical Arabic coffee pitcher. Um, it's like a metal kind of thing. It almost looks like a lamp from Aladdin, but taller. Um, and you would just put the coffee grounds in there. Um, and you would put the water in there and you would put a little bit of, um, oh, there's a, I think it's cardamom is the spice that they would put in with their coffee. They would just put a little bit in there with the coffee. Um, and then put it over the fire. Um, there is the stereotypical little coffee pitcher. Uh, there are also different varieties. Um, that was more the flashy thing that you bring out when you have guests. There were all these, there were oftentimes, um, traditionally and nowadays, things that you would bring out when you had guests that looked nice and then things that would, you, you would actually use on a daily basis that um, maybe weren't as nice looking or maybe they were inherited. Um, and they you know, had a little ding in, it, ding in it on the side or something. The way that I saw it done is they had two long like metal sticks and you just kind of hold the pitcher over the fire with the sticks and you just kind of let it roast until it starts kind of bubbling out and then you take it off and you let it cool for a little bit. Um, and they don't, I mean, you have the option to put milk and sugar in it, but you traditionally it's just very, 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 very strong black coffee. I think that's also why they don't drink it in large portions either. <laughs> no, that would make sense. <laughs> but yeah, so that's typically how it would be served is in a little ceramic cup. And you, it's, it's maybe the size of your thumb at the most. You know, it's a very small cup. Uh, so it's just a few sips. Um, and typically the host would pour for you. I was very honored when towards the end of my trip, we had a guest and um, his wife looked at me to pour the coffee. I, I don't know if that was an honor, but I felt honored <laughs> that I was like, I'd been here long enough that I could be considered part, like a partial host to like pour the coffee for someone else. Um, but anyways, yeah, so that's kind of how, that's what their coffee's like. And it's, it's, it's pretty strong, um, but it's, it's still pretty good too. Earlier, you had mentioned something about continuing some research. What, what do you, what does that look like for you, hopefully? Right now, um, I don't know. Right now, my plan is to kind of just float along, and I want to try and learn Arabic. Um, at some mm -hmm. point, I want to go back to grad school, and I want to continue research, and I want to do some more research because I've researched their hospitality. So part of me also wants to do more 
research about their hospitality, about their culture. But part of me also wants to try and do something to help their situation in Israel. So I want to research more of the history of how exactly it got to here and why. Um, there are organizations um, in Israel that are for minority Arabic populations. Um, so the Bedouins fall into that group. Um, the Bedouins in Israel also consider themselves Palestinians, um, or at least the family that I stayed with, which to say the word Palestinian, some people kind of hear that and they go, oh no, which you shouldn't. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But it's a very complicated situation. I want to try and figure out a way to help them that helps everybody. What I could possibly do to help them research-wise, whether it's shedding more light on their hospitality, which um, the man I stayed with really liked that I was writing about their hospitality because a lot of the times um, recently, um, if there's been something written about the Bedouin, it hasn't necessarily been the best light or it's all been political or religious no one's really written about you know the the brighter aspects of Bedouin of Bedouin culture that aren't you know tied to religion or politics that are just culture um so he was mm -hmm. really excited that I was writing about that and he thought that would be very beneficial for them if it ever got out <laughs> just to touch on something you'd, you'd brought up earlier you said as you were a single woman living in this in this Bedouin village how did that uh, how did that change your behaviors and, and how did that impact? You said you walked early in the morning and I assume later in the evening. Um, yeah. So like, yeah, how'd that impact your, your day to day? Uh, I wasn't ever really concerned about safety or anything. Um, the man I was staying with, he was kind of, um, I got the kind of understanding that he was, he was a very important man in the village. Um, he was kind of related to everyone. So he, he was telling me it was a population of about 5,000 people. And he said like 99% of them were related to him somehow, brothers, sisters, uh, nephews, nieces, daughters, sons, etc. Um, so he was related to most everyone there. So I wasn't necessarily concerned about safety. But there were some people in Bedouin culture um, who followed the religious belief of, you know, like, um, they don't sit with women that they're not married to or related to. Um, and there were even some people very closely like related to the family that were like, we, we don't sit with someone that, you know, isn't going to be related to us by blood or that, or that like they're not married to or something. Um, and so sometimes I would have to, if I had a certain guest, I'd have to go inside, try and observe from the window. But sometimes it did make um, trying to participate and observe difficult um, and then because there were some men in, in the village who like did practice that or did prefer that, um, whenever I would go to a dinner at someone's home, so like, so I was there during Eid, uh, so there were a few times that we would go to someone's home and there would be, you know, like 50 plus just women, there would be like 50 women. Um, so that means there were also probably at least 50 men, uh, and we would all have dinner as celebration together. Um, but because there were some of the men who uh, observed that rule, um, they would sit in a whole different room just for the men and there would be a whole different room just for the women. So I did get a little, you know, like I got a partial view of, um, of Bedouin culture. I got mostly a lot of women um, activities and participation. Um, yeah, that would be, 
a little bit one-sided, but in that aspect, uh, a lot of anthropology is already focused on what men do. So exactly. maybe it's good to see what women do. <laughs> exactly. Well, I want to, I guess the closer question I have for you is what is your favorite cup of coffee? Of like the little levels I talked about earlier or in, uh, in general, general? In general, it seems like something that you're very interested in. So I want to know what you think the best cup of coffee is. Oh, I prefer just a latte or a vanilla latte. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's pretty simple, but it's something you can ha- kind of find everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. My other favorite, when I'm actually in the country, in Israel, they have, they don't have Starbucks in Israel. They have um, Aroma Coffee. So that's like the Starbucks of Israel. And they're like their signature drink is either you know a hot coffee or an iced coffee with milk um and hot chocolate powder like hot like the drink hot chocolate um and then there's also it's served with a little chunk of chocolate that you drop in your drink so it kind of melts in there that's also pretty good (laughs) (laughs) but it's a little harder to come by (laughs) yeah i would imagine um, well, Rachel, thank you so much for your time. I know uh, it's the end of the the school year, and are you? Do you say you were done with your finals? Uh, I'm done with classes. I have two papers that are my finals, and then I have a I have a exam that I get to do over the course of two days. So are you, I still kind of have finals, <laughs> but it's definitely the most lax finals I think I've ever had. <laughs> I hope you have a, a great rest of your year and congratulations on being one of the 2020 graduates. It'll have a great story. Oh, yeah. thank, you. thank you so much <laughs> for your time. Um, it was really nice. No, thank you. For more information on the Odyssey program or Hendricks College, please join us at hendricks.edu or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hendricks College. Thanks for listening.